I know t- this is one of those nights when every, everybody's going to be a little bit distracted because they're... Uh, Yeah, that's what I read. Is that he's uh, that that at this point, and even even earlier, um, I mean all all through that. Um, but at this point, there, none of the none of the battleground states are being predicted for any for uh, one side or the other. So that won't happen probably, unless they're crazy. They're not going to jump jump on that ahead of time. So we can probably wait until. after class before we get too concerned about things. And even though things get chaotic, this is a night, good night to kind of read, understand a few things that we're going to read about in Acts 12. So just a reminder that um, the memorial service for Tom Flint is going to be this Sunday afternoon here at uh, West Houston Bible Church at 5 o'clock, and then there will be a reception following. Uh, also to remind you about the um, uh, Sunday, on Sunday, December the 9th, we're going to have our uh, Christmas brunch here on that Sunday instead of on a Friday night or Saturday night as we have in the past. And then this Saturday, uh, I'll be gone. Some of you are going to be coming to San Antonio. Uh, let me know if you are. And uh, I'll be speaking there Saturday morning. And also here in Houston, Pine Valley Bible Church is hosting the Campanile Garage Sale. And if you have anything to uh, that you'd like to put in that sale, bring it up here to the church by tomorrow morning. And Holly Benson is going to come by at 10 o'clock in the morning and pick that stuff up here. So that takes care of the announcements. In light of the election, we need to pay attention to these promises that I usually recite at class because they focus our attention on trust. And as we'll see in the lesson today, in the midst of some pretty horrendous leadership that occurred in the Roman Empire and in Israel during this particular time, it is a um, uh, we recognize that that it's never based on who the pol- pol- who's the political leaders are, what the politics are. It always depends upon the Lord. He's the one who is in control, and that is all that really matters. So let's. Um, Just be reminded of a few promises of Scripture. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we... Study the Word. Let's have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure we're in fellowship and ready to study this evening. Then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, it's good that we can come together this evening to focus upon your Word, not to get 
overly concerned about the affairs of state and what's going on in the election because we know that that will take care of itself and you're in control of those details and you're working out your plan in history. But, Father, we need to focus on our spiritual life because the real strength of the nation is the spiritual focus of believers and their dependence upon you and that we need to recognize that our stability, our emotional well-being, our happiness, our joy is all dependent upon you, not dependent upon the circumstances of, of an election. And so, Father, we pray that we might be focused upon you no matter what happens in this uh, today, as a result of the election today and that we recognize that only when this nation turns back to you can we have real, real liberty, real freedom. Until then, it's just a power play between two different aspects of a satanic worldview. Father, we pray that you might encourage us and strengthen us by what we study tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. We are in Acts chapter 12. At the end of Acts 11, we saw, and, and the section preceding this, we saw God's expansion of the church. The one message that comes across all through Acts is that it is Christ who is building the church through the Holy Spirit. This takes us back to a couple of different events in the teaching of our Lord in the Gospels. The two that I focus on are Matthew 18, when Jesus asked, uh, asked, asked Peter, who do men say that I am? He said, well, you, uh, basically they don't know. And he said, who do you say that I am? And he said, you're, uh, you are the Messiah, the Son of, the Son of God. And Jesus then comments that about that it's on this rock I will build my church, a reference to that recognition of that statement that it is on that faith perception that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's, that Christ is going to build the church. The point is that Christ said, I will build the church. In the 21st chapter of John, Jesus shows up on a beach on the Sea of Galilee and the disciples are out fishing, and they haven't had any luck. And then he tells them to, to throw out their net on the other side of the boat, and they throw out their net, and they bring in a load that's too heavy for them to even pull into the boat. And about that time begins to dawn on them who that is on the on the beach because they hadn't recognized him to that point. Then when they get on the beach, Peter, of course, jumps out of the boat and swims ashore. And they have breakfast, and then the Lord begins to drill Peter to see if he's learned anything over the last few days in relation to all that the Lord had taught him about love and forgiveness prior to the cross, Peter's failure and betrayal of the Lord at uh, the night that Jesus was arrested, and now the Lord says, well, Peter, do you love me? And there's this interchange that takes place where three times the Lord asks, Peter, do you love me? Three times Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. There's some interesting things that go on there as the Lord shifts from one synonym to another. Peter shifts from one synonym to another. But as a result of Peter saying, yes, Lord, you know I love you, the Lord gives three commands. Basically, feed the little lambs, feed the old ewes, feed the sheep. And that's the point of the, the purpose for the pastor and the apostles, etc., is to feed the sheep. Jesus said, I'll build my church, you feed the sheep. What we have today is an environment in American Christianity which we're exporting around the world 
where some for some reason it's the pastor who is sort of a manager, leader, motivator, but he's not the teacher. You go to many churches and there's more of a superficial message on Sunday morning that sadly, sadly, many of these pastors do not realize how superficial they've become because that's all they've heard. And I've been around many of the, their hearts right, they want to do right, they think they're doing well, but they haven't ever been exposed to any in-depth biblical teaching. And so they think, and they don't have any kind, any deep level of, of, uh, of training. So they think they're really teaching the word when they're just presenting pablum. They're, they're at a nursery school, preschool level in whatever it is that they're uh, teaching on Sunday morning. And biblical instruction is sort of left to the non-professionals, the untrained who are teaching in Sunday school. And so uh, <clears throat> rather than, and, and the pastor's job is to build the church. He needs to understand all the different methods that are out there for developing church growth, the things that have come out of the Rick Warren-type ministries, the purpose-driven church coming out of the uh, Willow Creek Church in Chicago and uh, several others that give a blueprint for how to build a church. But with the blueprint of the Scripture is if the pastor and the congregation do what God says to do in their spiritual life and in the exercise of their spiritual gifts, the numerical growth of the church, the protection and the oversight of that congregation is the Lord's responsibility. And what happens is we get these things confused and people try to take over and anybody in the power of the flesh who's a good businessman and a hard worker can build a big, a large organization and the Holy Spirit has nothing whatsoever to do with it. And all through the book of Acts, what we see is this uh, continuous emphasis on God the Holy Spirit growing the church, God protecting the church. But that protection of the church does not mean that horrible things didn't happen. There was persecution. There was opposition. There's the um, assault on uh, Stephen, and he's martyred. And in this chapter, we see that James, the brother of John, uh, the, James the Apostle is going to be arrested by uh, Herod uh, Agrippa. This is Herod Agrippa I. He's going to be arrested by him and will be beheaded. And then Peter is going to be arrested. So the fact that God is protecting you doesn't mean that you are without adversity. Because God is watching over us doesn't mean that uh, things are going to go well. In fact, God may watch over us and put us in what we think are some pretty horrendous horrible uh, circumstances, but we don't see the big picture. And so we need to focus on within the framework that God, where God has placed us, we need to be faithful and focus on the fact that, that we have a crucial role to play in that arena where God has placed us, and we don't have any idea uh, how that's going to, to play out. It was interesting, as I just said that, I was... Uh, last week and for several weeks to come, 
I'm trying to be diligent in taking care of all the details that are related to the loss of parents in, in their home and cleaning everything out of the house and going through all the papers and photographs and all of the uh, things that we collect over the course of life. And uh, I ran across a stack of mail that um, included letters from my mother's mother's parents, from my great-grandparents on my mother's mother's side, uh, when they were courting in the early 1880s. So that goes back a while. And in that bundle, there was also a letter that was written by my great-aunt, my grandmother's sister, to my grandmother right after I was born. Some of you know the circumstances. My mother uh, had polio in July of 1952. She was seven months pregnant at that time, and she had three types of polio, encephalitis, hepatitis, a kidney infection, a bladder infection, and me. And she was in the... um, at the uh, old uh, Jeff Davis Hospital here, which was where they had the polio ward. That always embarrassed her because that was the county county hospital, the welfare hospital, so to speak. And people would say, well, Robbie, where were you born? I said, well, I was born in Jeff Davis Hospital. I always thought that was kind of cool to be born in Jeff Davis Hospital. But everybody else was born in Herman or someplace else, and that would have just embarrassed her. But she was in an iron lung, and they just sort of pulled her out of the iron lung and pulled me out and put her back in. And my great-aunt wrote a letter to my grandmother and said, and she just heard about this. She read about it in the San Antonio Express paper, article about uh, my mother and my birth and everything. And And my aunt said, we need to keep realize that God has a plan and that we don't see what that plan is. We only see a small part of it, and so we need to keep focused on that and we need to just be, we don't understand why God let this happen, but we need to thank him that, that uh, uh, Gloria is still alive. And we need to be uh, thankful that uh, the birth went fine and that uh, even though he's, uh, he's a little small, uh, everything's going to be fine. So that just, I, I, that was great to read that, have that kind of heritage in the family of a focus on, on spiritual things. But that's it. We just don't see the focus of what's going on in your life or my life and how uh, things that are going on in our lives may not relate to what's happening when when we think of Romans 8.28, God works all things together for good. We may not be, our, our role in this may not be in terms of something in our life. It may impact the next generation through our children, our, our grandchildren. And we just don't know. We just have to walk that walk of faith. And so the same thing is true in the church. We have a church where we're teaching the word. We're doing what the scripture says to do. It's not the pastor's job. We don't believe it's the pastor's job to go out and knock on every door and to spend time doing all sorts of advertising campaigns and everything else. Not that there's not a place for some level of letting people know you're there, but not for the purpose of of, uh, building the church in the church growth sense. And we see this example, and one of these examples is uh, of God's protection and provision and promotion of the church is here in uh, Acts chapter 12. 
We've seen this with the expansion of the church north into Antioch. We saw the expansion and growth of that church, and it would become a major focus of, of missionary activity and spiritual growth for the next four centuries. And it's, of course, the base for Barnabas and Saul. And in chapter 13, we'll see the outworking of that as they go out uh, on their first missionary journey. But next week, what I'm going to do is take a little bit of a pause between chapter 12 and chapter 13, because with chapter 13, we're going to see the, the expansion of the church and focus on Paul. But I want to address something that I've had several people ask me about. Well, what happens to the rest of the apostles? What about all the other uh, disciples? And they're all in Jerusalem up to this point, and it's at this transition point between 12 and 13, sometime in this area, that they begin to go out to other uh, areas of the Roman Empire and other areas uh, further east and further west. And so I'm going to pause for a week or two and just look at what we know of the other disciples and what happened to them because little, if anything, is said in, in Scripture. So it's not about what the Scripture says. It's about what we learn from, from history and from, uh, from some tradition. But it all supports the message of the book of Acts, which is ultimately, on the one hand, the disciples are told that they are to be witnesses and to take the gospel to the uttermost part of the world. And that's still the mission of every single believer. And if we're not doing that in our personal life as part of our church life, then the church isn't going to grow because we're not doing our side of it. God's side of it is that he uses that in whatever way he's going to use that. And we see how the Lord used that in many ways in the, in the early church as the church expanded out from, uh, from Jerusalem. So <clears throat> the point of this section is that God, not men, or methods, protects, God protects, promotes, and provides for the church. It's not based on methods, and it's not based on men or personalities. And yet as human beings, that seems to be what we gravitate to in the flesh. If we just had the right method, if we just had the right technique, if we just had the right pastor with the right personality, then we could build a great church. But then you're building a church not on the basis of the Word of God and people's positive volition to truth. You're building a church on the basis of uh, human personality and uh, human skill. So we come to chapter 12, and we see opposition to the church arise again in Jerusalem. <clears throat> and this time it comes down, not it's it's not from the from the Jews and their hostility to the Christians that have come out from their midst, but now it's coming down officially from the government powers, specifically Herod the king. We read now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them, in order to abuse them, and to harass them, as the New King James puts it. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And because he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded further to seize Peter also. That is, he arrests Peter. And then we're told when this occurs, it's during the days of unleavened bread. Now, the days of unleavened bread is used as a, uh, as a synonym in this passage for Passover. Passover was actually on the 14th day of Nisan, which is comes in the spring somewhere around March or April on our calendar. 
And the Days of Unleavened Bread, it's a week-long festival that begins with the day of Passover. The day of Passover is the first day of the week-long Days of Unleavened Bread. So this is the same time of year as the crucifixion. So the early church would be observing a remembrance of the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's at that time when they are celebrating Passover that Herod, this Herod, seeks to... Uh, seeks to curry favor with the people. So we need to see who this Herod is. And this is always kind of fun to go through the Herodian genealogy, and I've, I've slimmed it down here a little bit so it doesn't get into all the, um, all the side trails that, where, where it goes. But these are the descendants of Herod the Great. And reading about the Herodians, the, the, the Herods, the, the, the family of Herod and the leaders that came from him, it, it, it makes modern-day soap opera seem rather mild. They were, they were. I mean, these guys would made the Chicago political machine look pristine and innocent. They were backstabbers and paranoid, and they did uh, just everything. They were, you know, killing off one wife in order to. Uh, Mary, his sister, and all kinds of things. So they were just very interesting groups. So we need to understand them a little bit, and I want to go through just some basic, basic uh, history here, so we understand why this Herod is so significant. This is this Herod in this event because it begins uh, with the introduction of this Herod, and this is actually Herod Antipas, or excuse me, Herod Agrippa the first, who I have. Uh, highlighted there in the green box, Herod Agrippa I, and he had messianic pretensions. And that's one of the reasons this is put in there, although that's not really brought out um, too overtly in the text, but it is uh, clearly present in the text. So we have the, the patriarch of this clan is referred to as Antipater, this is the father of Herod the Great. He was an uh, Edomite. These are descendants of Esau, and they re- they lived in the, the the area of Edom was to the originally south and uh, east across the Jordan down in the area generally where Petra is today. And then in the during the period of the ancient uh, uh, ancient world, they sort of migrated across. Uh, the Jordan below the Dead Sea, that area uh, came across into the hill country of Judea, and this was the uh, kingdom of uh, the Edomites. So they're, they're distant cousins to the Jews, but there's a lot of uh, suspicion and hostility. And Antipater had accrued favor with the Romans and had been elevated to a position of power and so uh, there's a lot of fighting that's going on at this particular time in history between the Romans who are expanding westward and they're running up against a, uh, another empire to the east, the Parthians. Today we call them Iranians, Persians, same general group of people that uh, uh, are coming out of Iran, which is uh, mo- just modern Persia, and they are pushing pushing west. And so this always was a problem uh, for Herod. And in 40 BC, the Parthians gained control of Jerusalem and established Antigonus, who was a 
who was a Jewish leader, as a puppet ruler in Jerusalem. They captured Herod's brother, Phaziel, and they were going to torture him and execute him, and he committed suicide. This put great fear into Herod's heart. Herod just knew he would be next, and so he managed to escape, and he fled to, to first to Egypt and then to Rome. When he went to Egypt, he uh, was taken care of and protected by Cleopatra, the Cleopatra of Mark Antony and Cleopatra fame. And then he, uh, she gave him money and a ship to go to Rome. And she helped him plan his strategy as to how he would go back and reclaim uh, his throne and power in Judea and defeat the Parthians. Now, what he did during this time was to protect his family. He sent them, for those of you who've uh, been to Israel and know something about the history, he sent his family to uh, Matzada or Masada, which was a, a fortress at that time that had some history for a couple of centuries up on a flat top, small flat top uh, plateau down by the Dead Sea that was extremely difficult to reach. And he had set up some supplies there so that they could be uh, protected, isolated uh, from the Parthians until he could come back to rescue them. Then that, that plays an important role in things that come up later on. So he goes to Rome. He meets there with um, uh, Caesar and Mark Antony, and he, especially Mark Antony, and um, Mark Antony promises that he would be made the ruler or the king of Judea. And uh, Antony supported him in the Roman Senate, and they appointed him, Herod, that is, to be king of Judea. Now, Herod was also very close at this time to Octavius, who is Julius Caesar's nephew and would soon be Caesar Augustus, so that when Augustus became emperor, uh, at that time his second-in-command was a Roman by the name of Agrippa. That's where the name for Herod Agrippa comes from, is his close friendship and relationship with uh, with uh, Augustus Caesar's number two man, Agrippa. And it was said that in Augustus's affection, Herod was second only to Agrippa, and in Agrippa's affection, Herod is second only to Augustus. So he is very close to the most powerful people in the Roman Empire, and they are going to back him with all of the strength that they have to put him back on the throne in Judea to protect uh, their their western, or excuse me, their eastern flank from the Parthian Empire. Uh, so they back him. He's sent back. He goes to uh, Akko, which is a port north of Haifa in the just below Lebanon today, and he pulls together an army of Galileans, and then the first thing he does is he goes down to Masada to liberate his family uh, who are hiding there, rescue them so they can't be attacked or, or uh taken captive by Antigonus. And then he launched an assault from Galilee, uh, captures Sephorus. We've been to Sephorus several times on our trips to Israel. Captured Sephorus, which was the capital of Galilee, uh, captured it in a snowstorm. This is 39 B.C. This is roughly 35 years, 35, 36, 34, 35 years before Christ is born. A couple of years later, he captures Jerusalem, and in that capture, he ended up slaughtering thousands of Jews. This doesn't make him popular among the Jews. He captures Antigonus, 
uh, and sends him to Rome. Ant- Mark Anthony has him executed there in Rome. Uh, again, this does not make him very, very uh, favorable to the Jews. As Herod grew older, he was a brilliant man. He was a brilliant architect. Every time you turn around looking at the remains, architectural remains and um, archaeological remains in, in Israel, there's something else that was built by Herod. He built all over the country. He was incredible. And his a lot of his uh, uh, architectural and administrative abilities. But as he grew older, maybe from disease or just old age, dementia, he became quite paranoid. And he was quite concerned that his sons were trying to steal the kingdom from him. And so, uh, and, and the fact was that they were. They were getting tired of him hanging around so long. He had lived uh, way too long in their estimation, and they wanted their taste of power uh, while they were young enough to enjoy it. And so <clears throat> two of his sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, uh, committed treason. They were arrested. Now, Aristobulus is important because he is the father of uh, Agrippa I. Uh, he's not on the chart there because he is executed. He's tried of treason. Uh, Mark Antony had encouraged Herod not to have a trial in Judea, but to have the trial up in Beirut, uh, what is now known as Beirut. And so they had the trial there, and then they executed him by strangulation at uh, Samaria, known at the Roman period as Sebast. So that made uh, Antipater uh, the sole heir, but he became impatient, so he's got two sons he's already executed. The heirship's now, inheritance is now going to go to Antipater. But he became impatient and tried to poison Herod. But the plot failed when Herod's brother, Pheroras, drank the poison by mistake and died. So Herod put Antipater in prison, reported the matter to the emperor. This is in 5 BC. This is about the time that... Jesus is born and the Magi show up right in this time period. We know that because by the spring of 4 B.C., Herod dies. So Jesus had to be born uh, sometime before 4 B.C., and the Magi had to come to Herod sometime probably that winter or maybe that the, the fall of uh, 5 B.C. So this is about the same time uh, that this is taking place in the background Herod puts Antipater in prison, reports the matter to the emperor, and at this time Herod comes down with a disease that is eventually will kill him. Uh, we're not sure what it was. It had something to, may have had something to do with testicular cancer or something else in the lower extremities of his intestines, and it was an extremely miserable, painful death as he had gangrene and everything else going on in terms of of uh, of this infection in his lower extremities. So it was was a very painful death. He died in 4 B.C., and he, over the process of time, he ended up drawing up about six different wills uh, going to different uh, ones of his sons. And actually his kingdom was split between the three that you see there on the top line, Archelaus, who uh, becomes the ethnarch. That's just a... Uh, a term for a ruler, a lower-level ruler. He's the ethnarch of Judea from uh, 4 B.C. to A.D. 6. So this is for about 10 years. Antipas, 
who was a good ruler, is in the north, Herod Antipas. He is the ruler, the Herod, uh, who is in power during the time of Christ. This is the Herod to whom Pontius Pilate sends Jesus the night uh, he's arrested, and and it is Herod Antipas who sends Jesus back to uh, back to Pilate, and he is the tetrarch of Galilee and Perea, and then Philip is the tetrarch of uh, in the northeastern part in Galilee, and you see something of this division here in this map. This is the uh, this is Galilee here. This is the area here where. Uh, uh, Philip was tetrarch in this area here, Caesarea uh, Philippi in the north, which was sort of the capital of his territory up here. It was covered a good bit of this uh, purple territory is all under his domain. This is the area of the Galilee, and then this was uh, part of Herod's main uh, territory, which went to Archelaus. And then eventually it comes under, after Archelaus is kicked out in 6 A.D., it comes under the uh, uh, authority of Herod uh, Antipas. So it is Herod the Great, though, is the one who is the Herod, the king, at the time of the birth of Jesus. And when the Parthian, when the Medes show up, and remember the, 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 when the Magi show up, the Magi were Medians. That was their tribe. They were Medes from, from the Parthian Empire. They were part of a tribal group that for the last two or three centuries had a position of power in the Parthian Empire where they appointed and recognized the succession of rulers in the Parthian Empire. They were, in effect, the Parthian kingmakers. So when Herod gets a knock on the door one day and it is the the Magi show up and they're Parthian kingmakers and he's paranoid that the Parthians are going to uh, invade again and take the kingdom from him and they're looking for the king of the Jews and it's not him, then he his paranoia went into overdrive. This is why he sent out troops to kill all of the infants because it threatened the succession. But by this time he is seriously in dementia. It's just within a few months, uh, less than a year from his death, from disease and everything else. But all of this uh, is part of the background. Now, his son, uh, Herod, go back to the chart here, uh, Herod Archelaus uh, was given, the Romans gave him Judea. He's the older son through Herod's uh, Samaritan wife, Malthus, and he's uh, arguably the worst of Herod's sons. Uh, he uh, he was involved before he uh, became the, the ruler in a massacre of over 3,000 Jews who had revolted against uh, his father uh, because uh, Herod had killed a number of Jews, and so that led to this revolution. And then uh, Archelaus uh, has to put down that revolution, kills 3,000 Jews, and he's constantly, he's vicious. He kills, executes, imprisons. Uh, he w- had to leave for a while. Rome sent him back in 4 B.C., and he's only, he only rules for about six, uh, about 10 years before he's kicked out. And then, um, and he's so brutal that he's not really re- replaced, but Judea was then given to his uh, brother Herod Antipas. Uh, Antipas is, this, is his younger brother, same mother, 
inherited first the uh, Galilee and Perean regions. He gets the name Tetrarch, which literally means a ruler of one-fourth, so he got a quarter of Herod's uh, empire. He's the Herod who imprisoned and then executed John the Baptist. Uh, he's the Herod that Jesus called the fox in Luke 13.31. Uh, he is, like his father Herod the Great, a gifted administrator and architect. He built the city of Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee, named it for the emperor, and his family life and marriage is so confusing because of all the marriages and intrigue and duplicity that I'm not even going to go into it uh, tonight. It's enough for us to understand uh, what that that existed. Uh, and he is the uncle of of Herod uh, Herod Agrippa. So in uh, uh, because of course Antipater was uh, Herod Agrippa's father who was killed earlier. I believe it was. Uh, we've gotten the name wrong. I'm not sure. Get that. Get the name right. Herod. Um, Aristobulus. Aristobulus was his father. So then we come to Herod Agrippa I, who becomes a king in 39. And he is very popular. He is one of those people who has a charismatic personality. He knows just how to work the people to get everybody behind him. We've seen some presidents like that who uh, just seem to exude a charisma that for some reason people seem to really like them and they seem to get away with whatever it is they want to get away with. Well, Agrippa... Uh, was that way. When he was four years of age, his father had been executed, so the family shipped him off to Rome for his protection, and he grew up in the household of Caesar. And he was very close to Gaius, who later became known as Caligula, and he loved to gamble, incurred a number of debts, and so when uh, Gaius became emperor, he appointed, uh, and, and when uh, Herod, Ant, uh, excuse me, when uh, Antipas uh, died, then, or was exiled because of his failures, then he convinced uh, Caligula to appoint him as the king of Judea. And he continues to curry favor with everybody. He's just well-loved, but he has an ego that is getting larger and larger because he doesn't seem to have any failure. And each every couple of years, Rome gives him more of what had originally been part of Herod's kingdom. Nobody since Herod had died had ruled all of that territory, but it's all going to come back to Herod Agrippa uh, I. So in um, uh, <clears throat> 37, Caligula gave, made him king, gave him the territories in that northeastern section, and then... In uh, 39, he gave him the Galilee and Perea. And then when Claudius became emperor, he was still incurring such favor that Claudius didn't uh, uh, limit him in any way, but Claudius then gave him Judea and Samaria. That's in 41. And in 44, which is the time of this event, Herod is at the top of his popularity. He has increased his power base and he can do no wrong. So now he really wants to curry favor with the Jewish population. So he decides the best way to do that is to arrest, start arresting the leaders in the Jewish church. Now the Jews, by this time, 
not all the Jews, I'm using the term in the way the scriptural writers use them, that's the leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the, the Sanhedrin, uh, they were in opposition to those who were followers of Jesus, who, as we learned in the last chapter, had become known as Christians. Uh, they were in opposition now, especially as they were letting uh, Gentiles come into their homes and they were breaking down barriers between the, the Jews and the Gentiles. This completely offended the sensibilities of the leaders of the uh, of the uh, Jewish uh, Pharisees and, Sanhed- and, and in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. So this is a time when Herod can really curry favor. So he has James arrested, who is the brother of John. And if you remember, these two brothers are known as the sons of thunder, the sons of thunder. They were some of the first disciples that uh, are brought to uh, they come to Jesus, and they are with him in his inner circle. They are the sons of Zebedee. We're told in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-six that Zebedee's wife was Salome, S-A-L-O-M-E, uh, Salome or Salome, and and that it's indicated in John nineteen twenty-five that Salome was a sister to Mary, the mother of our Lord. Now, that's interesting because if that connection is right, then John and James are first cousins to uh, the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ. It shows you that this is a real family affair and that they are uh, close to one another, and this is, would be one reason, too, that they would be in the inner circle. Remember, John the Baptist is also a cousin. So they were all very, very close, but it's interesting how they're, they're cousins, but they're not too knowledgeable about uh, their cousin Jesus. And it's not until, because they don't live in the same area, so they don't uh, see him that much until he is ready to reveal himself as as the Messiah. Uh, James' background was like like his brother John. They were uh, fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. Uh, they were among the first to be called as disciples of Jesus, and they were part of his inner circle, James, John, as well as Peter. Uh, James became the leader of the church in the church in Jerusalem. Peter, remember, is going out and uh, taking the gospel around, and so James is a leader in the church, and he's the brother of uh, John, and he is executed. Now, there were uh, three different ways in which a person could be executed, and this was the uh, according to the Mishnah, and this was the one with the least amount of, of pain to be decapitated, and it's clearly spelled out in the Mishnah according to uh, tractate Sanhedrin, uh, chapter 17 and 19, that uh, this death would be due to apostasy. So they are like the Lord Jesus Christ. They're being, uh, he's being executed for blasphemy or, or apostasy. And this pleases the Jews. And Herod picks up on this, verse 3, because he saw that it pleased the Jews. He proceeded further to seize Peter. So now he arrests Peter, and he is going to execute him. That is the understanding. And he puts Peter under an impressive 
uh, guard, one that is far beyond what you would think would be uh, necessary. He get, puts four uh, uh, squads of soldiers, uh, assigns four squads of soldiers to watch over uh, Peter. And the plan is that uh, they would uh, rotate. There would be two that would be shackled to Peter, and then there would be each squad had four, and then there would be two outside the door. So every time there would be a shift, there were always two guards shackled to Peter because they want to make sure that he's not going to disappear again like before, back in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John were miraculously released from prison. They want to make sure that's not going to happen again. And then after the days of unleavened bread, he would be executed. So Peter's kept in prison, and the people in the church are gathering, and they're praying. They're focused on the fact that God can deliver him, but they don't really believe that God can deliver Peter. Maybe he'll delay it. Maybe he won't get executed. But their 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 faith is weak. And there's almost a comic element to the description of the next few verses, from verse five down to verse nineteen, which shows the sense of humor that uh, the Holy Spirit has here, and uh, pointing out uh, the weaknesses of those in in the church. So we're told that Peter was kept in prison. But a constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. This was a continual thing. They ran an ongoing prayer meeting, and this prayer meeting was located in the home of Mary, the mother of John Mark. Now, John Mark's been mentioned before. John Mark is the, uh, later will be the author of the Gospel of Mark. The well, first time we really get to know him is going to be in chapter 13 when we see him as a young man who accompanies Barnabas and Paul on Paul's first missionary journey. But he's a little young, and he's a little inexperienced, and he can't rough it, and he can't handle the opposition. And he's a little bit, you get the picture, he's a little bit of a whiner. And so Paul sends him home. And for a while, Paul won't have anything to do with him uh, anymore. This leads to a split between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas always sought to work with those who were uh, less popular. Remember, he's the one who went to get Paul out of exile from Tarsus and to bring him back to uh, bring him back to Antioch uh, to help with the leadership of the church. Barnabas is going to work with with Mark and help him grow to maturity. And by the much later on, uh, Mark becomes very close to Paul again, but he's also very close to Peter, and it is believed that. Mark's gospel is really his uh, recording of what Peter told him about his life as a disciple. So it's Peter's perspective on uh, on the life of Christ. Now here's a, um, uh, a chart here of the city of Jerusalem, and I don't know which one is better, so you can tell me whether what what looks better. This one looks kind of busy to me, but then again, sometimes that information is helpful. This is a little has a little less clutter to it, and this one I think is going to make better sense if we understand one of the others. So I'll just point out a couple of things here. This is the Temple Mount here, this rectangle. This is familiar to many of you. This is the area where today they have the uh, Dome of the Rock, the Haram al-Sharif, 
as it's known by the Arabs. This is the Temple Mount, as it's known by the Jews. This was the Herodian Temple here. And the rectangle here is the outline of the wall and the foundation that was established by by uh, Herod the Great when they rebuilt the temple. Now, the temple, they didn't stop sacrifices, so this is still considered the second temple. The first stage was Zerubbabel's temple, which was much smaller and modest. And then when Herod came along, he wanted to build an architectural masterpiece. So they uh, most of the work had to be uh, carried out by Levitical priests. They trained Levitical priests in all the different uh, construction skills necessary to build it, and they started this in about uh, 20 B.C. and worked on it until the mid-40s. So here we have the Temple Mount. Now, that's your orientation. North is up. East is to the right. This green-shaded area here is the uh, Mark Antony Fortress, the Antonia Fortress, which is where Peter is kept in prison. When he escapes, he's going to take off, get out from from there, and then walk through the city down to this area of the city. Now, here on this map, they have an indication of the high priest's house. That's debated because most of the priests lived in this area overlooking the temple, and there was a walkway uh, going across uh, from the uh, city into right here uh, at Warren's Gate, going right into the temple area. And so most of the priests lived in this area of the city and had easy access uh, to the temple. There is one view that the upper room, this is a traditional location down this in this area. There's another view that it's located here. I believe there's a, a Syrian church there now, or the Church of St. Mark's is there now in the old city. We don't really know where it existed, but uh, he's got to go through the city, and he's just been released from prison uh, to get to the home of, of um, Mary, the mother of John Mark. This is a little different perspective. Here's the temple, the Antonio Fortress here, and then again we have the... Uh, see, they changed the location of the high priest up to a closer area here according to this view, which I think is more more correct. Those of you who have been to Israel, this is the area of the... We went kind of down into a building and we saw the, all the excavations inside that. It was a large building. Uh, where you, we walked along and saw the foundations of all the buildings that they uncovered after the uh, uh, in 67 war, Israel reclaimed that area. The old buildings that had been built by uh, over the centuries had all in the Jewish quarter had all been destroyed by the Arabs. So they were able to go in before they rebuilt the Jewish quarter. They were able to go in and excavate that area and discovered all of these remains from the. Uh, first century and before the time of the destruction of the temple. So that sort of orients us a little bit to what is going on. Now, this is a 3D showing us that basically Peter comes out. He's going to walk along what is now called the Via Dolorosa and come through the old city up to the upper city somewhere in here to uh, uh, find the church praying. So let's go back and look at what's happening in verse 6. When Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers and guards before the door 
were keeping the prison. So he's got two soldiers inside the cell with him, two outside guarding the door. Behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appears. A light shone in the prison, and it doesn't even wake Peter up. The guards are out as well, but Peter is uh, still uh, is sleeping so hard that uh, he has to be uh, shoved or pushed, almost slapped, struck by the angel to wake him up. And he strikes Peter on the side. This is also the word that's used for those who are uh, who are struck dead by by the angel. So it's a hard slap to wake him up. And the angel says, "Rise quickly!" And Peter, somewhat groggily, I would guess, stands up, and the chains fall off his hands. Then the angel said, uh, gird yourself and tie on your sandals. In modern language, that's put your clothes on and put on your shoes and let's get out of here. Then the angel said, uh, uh, then verse 9, so he went out following the angel and did not know that what was done by the angel was real. He thinks he's in a dream. He's had a dream, a vision a couple of chapters back about Cornelius. And at this point, he thinks he's in a dream. So he's uh, he's still kind of groggy, not fully awake yet, and as he gets out into the night air, he finally realizes what is going on. Verse 10, when they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened uh, to them of its own accord, and they went out, went down one street, and immediately the angel left him. And when this happens, now all of a sudden Peter realizes what's happened, knows that the Lord has sent his angel and delivered him. And so he thinks about what to do, and he goes to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname is Mark, where they're gathered for prayer. Now, this is the really humorous part. He comes up to the house. Now, this is a depiction, a model of first-century homes. Now, the home that he comes to seems to be rather large because there are so many people there, and it also is the home where there had been, where they had uh, an upper room. So this house, this model here, has the upper room. Uh, associated with it, which would be the guest room. This would be where they were meeting for prayer. And uh, he goes and he knocks on the door. And you see there's a courtyard, and this isn't exactly the same, but there's a courtyard, and he's outside the courtyard. If there was a door here, it would be like knocking on that outer door. And the servant girl, Rhoda, comes out to answer the door and ask who is there. And uh, the fact that uh, John Mark's mother has a servant girl indicates that there's, uh, she lived in the uh, aristocratic area of, of uh, the city, which would have been in that upper area that we were talking about, that Herodian area where we visited on trips to uh, Jerusalem. And she hears, uh, she comes to the door, she recognizes Peter's voice, and she's so excited that she, instead of opening the door and letting him in, she runs back to tell everybody in the prayer meeting, that that Peter's standing outside, that their prayers have been answered. And they <clears throat> they, they don't believe her. Verse, verse 15, they say, you, you're just imagining this. You're beside yourself. And she kept insisting. They said, no, 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 you're, just, you're, you're seeing a spirit. It's his angel. There was this belief among Jews at the time that everybody has a guardian angel, and sometimes that guardian angel would impersonate the person. So that's, they're just relying on some sort of su- superstition. They don't believe God answers their prayers. 
And so Peter's out there, and he's just banging away. He's afraid the guards are going to come and arrest him, and they won't even let him in. So there's a real comical aspect to this because they don't believe. Finally, uh, Rhoda convinces them, and and they go and um, uh, finally let him let him in. Uh, they, and they're just amazed. Verse 16 and verse 17, motioning them with his hand to keep silent. He declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and then directed them to go tell James. This would be James, the other, the brother of Jesus, who now is a major leader in the Jerusalem church. Go tell these things to James and to the brethren. And he then left, not to endanger them, he left and goes to another place to uh, hide out. As soon as it was day, there was uh, quite an excitement among all of the soldiers because Peter had just vanished into thin air. But when Peter, when Herod had searched for him, so Herod sends out the troops, he can't find him, he examines the guards, and he has them executed. That's collateral damage, because in the Roman Empire, if you were on guard duty and the, and the prisoner escaped, then you lost your life. It was capital punishment. So they were put to death, and... <clears throat> Peter went, and then we're told Herod uh, went down from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there because he had moved his palace down there where we saw pictures of this before uh, in Caesarea Maritima. Then verse 20, just want to wrap up in the next couple of minutes, Herod's death. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. That's up north. There had been a lot of uh, uh, disputes over trading rights and taxes and things of that nature. And so the people in Tyre and Sidon, the Phoenicians, sent down um, a delegation, and they probably bribed Blastus, uh, Agrippa's aide, to let them come in and uh, talk to the king. So they come in, and they are going to have a conference with Herod, and he uh, comes into the uh, that that um, large coliseum there, the the theater actually in Caesarea by the sea. He's down on a uh, dais or platform down in front, and and he was going to make a speech. And it was typical that day for them to make a speech from a sitting position and not standing. We're told by Josephus that he dressed in silver, in a silver robe and a silver silver headgear so that as the uh, sun came up, and if you remember when we're there at Caesarea, if you were speaking down in front, you are facing east. So the sun would be coming up behind the, uh, the, the theater there, the Colosseum, behind the seats, and it would hit him all dressed in silver and reflect off of him so that the people... Could, could not see him. They would just see this bright reflection down in front, very dramatic and theatrical. And they then say, uh, this is the voice of a god. He's, he's playing the role. His ego has gotten so large. He thinks he's, he's a god. He thinks that he has um, these messianic pretensions. And immediately we're told in verse 23 that he comes under the sin and to death. The angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. Now, we don't exactly know what this disease was. There are always a number of people who try to come up with uh, some sort of guess as to what caused 
uh, Herod's death, what kind of uh, disease he had. And all we were told in the Scripture is that he is eaten from worms. And this could be any number of uh, uh, different worms. It could have uh, round worms or hookworms or other um, parasites that had already invaded uh, his body. This was not unusual in the ancient world for someone to have intestinal worms. And the timing, of course, of this is all related to the judgment of God and he goes into uh, serious uh, intestinal pain, and he is on his deathbed for five days before he finally dies. And then we get another report. There's all This is miraculous. Number one, Peter's released from prison. Number two, Herod is struck down by God because of his, uh, his arrogance and his pretensions to, uh, to be God. And then we're told, but the word of God grew and multiplied. Now, when you look at how the church is growing, it's they're not using any modern techniques, are they? No salesmanship techniques going on here. We're not having a purpose-driven church. People are just excited about serving the Lord and doing what the Scripture says to do and telling people about it. They're obedient, and they're excited about learning the word. And so this, again, sees growth. Now, this brings to a conclusion the second division in Acts. Remember, Jesus said to the disciples, wait here in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes, and then you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Jerusalem's the first section up through chapter 6, 7, and then 8 to the end of 12 uh, is the second division, which is the expansion through Judea and Samaria and now to the uttermost part of the earth, which is going to begin in chapter 13. Uh, The last verse of chapter 12 uh, brings in Barnabas and Saul. They returned from their trip to Jerusalem to bring money for the uh, aid of the church there in a famine, and they take with them John, whose surname is Mark. So Luke ties things together for us, and this will begin uh, the second division as they are sent out to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So we'll come back next time, chapter 13, and start looking at their approach to taking the gospel to the pagan Roman Empire. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things and to be reminded that the church is your work and there is a miraculous effort here on your part to expand the church and to bring into the church all those who desire to know you and to be saved. And, Father, we pray that as believers we might be obedient to the Great Commission to take the gospel to throughout the world to support it in terms of missionary support and in terms of our own desire to be a witness to those around us. And we recognize that you are the one who brings about the fruit. You are the one who brings about Uh, the the consequences, and it's up to us whether or not we're going to participate in the blessing. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.